I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday the 1st of September, and today I'm speaking with Rupert Beale, a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, who has written three pieces for the LRB on COVID-19 since the pandemic began six months and several lifetimes ago, most recently in our last summer issue. And this is his fourth appearance on the podcast. Hello, Rupert, and thank you very much for finding the time to join us again. Hello, Thomas. Nice to speak to you again. You wrote your last piece for the paper on the 31st of July, in which you expressed some cautious optimism, genuine grounds for hope, you said. Better, quicker tests, more effective therapies, and most important, several strong vaccine candidates have made it to final stage clinical trials. And how have those trials progressed over the last month or so? Has the news got any better or any worse? Well, I think it's important to, to point out that I, I was describing different kinds of vaccine more than I was desc- describing particular vaccine candidates. There isn't any sort of um, enormously ground-changing news about those different kinds of vaccine candidates as far as their sort of uh, efficacy goes. We don't have the reports from phase three trials. Those are expected perhaps to be sort of end of October, beginning of November before we have data on, on those. It could easily be longer. There have been certain developments. So one is a different sort of vaccine candidate that's, that's also showing promise. So in the article, I referenced the simple idea of uh, killing the live virus, the idea of making the message that uh, gives rise to spike, the, the messenger RNA type vaccines, and then also the, the hybrid vaccines based on the adenovirus, um, for example, the the one that's in phase three uh, trials with uh, AstraZeneca in collaboration with Oxford University. There's also been uh, some promising developments in a different kind of vaccine, which is where you produce the protein, spike protein, and then you give what's called an adjuvant, uh, and you administer that directly. And there's some... And just very quickly, sorry, that the spike protein is the what the virus uses to get into the human cells, is that right? Correct. So if you were to look at um, a picture of coronavirus by electron microscopy or something like that, you would see these big, what they call spikes, on the outside of a, an approximately round ball containing the viral RNA, the viral genome. And on the outside of these um, spikes, they were described as spikes back in the 60s, and, and that turns out to be a large protein complex which allows the virus to penetrate through the, the membrane of the cell and get in. So that the principle behind a lot of vaccines for lots of different viruses is that if you block the activity of their entry machinery then you'll be able to block 
uh, entry of the virus and therefore prevent it infecting. And, and that is the, the strategy that's being tried at the moment with SARS-CoV-2. And so the idea is that you, you want to elicit these antibodies to the spike protein, uh, specifically ones which will block it, block the virus from entering the cell. And, and so the, the fourth different type of vaccine that's in a relatively advanced clinical trials, I think this is not yet into phase three clinical trials, although they're looking to recruit uh, for that, is one where you produce the spike protein itself, and then you produce uh, alongside it what, what you call an adjuvant. An adjuvant, for people who sort of uh, studied Latin will, will know it comes from uh, adjuvo to help. So it helps the immune system produce antibodies. And that is also looking quite promising in uh, you know phase one trials where fairly good titles of neutralizing antibodies have been elicited. So there's another different sort of uh, vaccine that, you, that we can expect to go into phase three clinical trials, you know, relatively soon. So in that sense, this is all pretty optimistic. You know, we, we might be unlucky and one of these vaccine types might fail or a specific one might fail. But for all of the different vaccines uh, across all of the different platforms, all of the different ideas that are being used for, for them all to fail, I think is fortunately is spectacularly unlikely. So I think we can be reasonably optimistic we will have a vaccine that's uh, going to be useful and and rolled out to a substantial proportion of people at some point next year. I think that would be my sort of reasonable best guess about it. And obviously there are strong political and public health pressures to do it as quickly as possible, but obviously there are very strong clinical and public health reasons not to rush it. Uh, There was a piece in The Lancet last week warning against rushing out a vaccine too quickly and giving a there is emergency measures to to give emergency approval aren't there a lot of governments are possibly keen to approve vaccines earlier than they should i'm sure that is the case i mean the most egregious example i suppose is is what uh, russia have done with if they've made a, a vaccine which looks um, quite a lot like the Oxford vaccine. It's a bit different, but it, it's a similar sort of principle. And they appear to be rolling this out without having conducted extensive phase three trials. I mean, it's quite unlikely that we'll get, um, you know, substantial information about the efficacy of that vaccine other than, you know, what, what would effectively be propaganda telling us that it's all OK. I think that's extremely worrying, not least because if we did run into troubles with a particular vaccine, that would potentially undermine confidence in the whole enterprise and reduce uptake of vaccine, which, of course, will be critically important over time that, you know, if we do get a vaccine which is useful, you'll need a substantial proportion of people to to take it up for it to have the the, the best efficacy. So I think we need to be very careful not to rush uh, in the sense of going ahead of the safety data. We, We have, you know, very promising data from phase one and phase two trials, you need these extensive phase three trials to look for the rarer but still important uh, side effects. And I think going ahead and, and uh, pushing these uh, vaccines out into the population without conducting those trials is is little short of crazy. A phase one trial is testing in animals, is that right? And then phase two is in the... No, well, well no, it's, it's, these are phase, phase one, phase two trials in humans. So typically you would, you would test these uh, vaccines in animals first. Phase one trials were carried out on a small number of volunteers to look for sort of safety data. And phase two is a sort of slightly larger version of that where you're beginning to look at to look at efficacy. I mean, it's slightly different at the moment because people are rolling phase one and phase trial two trials into one another to try and get this done as, as fast as reasonably possible. And phase three trials is when you're having the, the much larger scale 
uh, trials where you're, you're, you're going to, uh, and also potentially to somewhat more vulnerable groups as well, which of course would be very important. And what sort of numbers? Is that numbers in, in the hundreds, thousands? In the tens of thousands, usually. Uh, for, uh, that's, I, I think the Oxford vaccine is, is, is in the sort of early 10,000s, isn't it? So that's what they're looking at. And how long do those trials tend to go on for? Well, now, this is the, the, the difficult question to answer because it depends an awful lot on how much transmission there is going on in the communities where those uh, trials are being carried out. Um, and obviously, in the UK, we have relatively successfully suppressed transmission. The Office of National Statistics' latest estimates are that it's about 2,000, roughly speaking, 2,000 per day. That's across the entire population of, of the UK. And, and so in those circumstances, you know, you need to wait longer to get the sort of, as it were, statistical power to, to demonstrate that the vaccine's been efficacious. In other settings, for example, in, in parts of South America where there's still sustained community transmission and parts of the United States, you may be able to generate useful data more rapidly. So I suspect, I couldn't be sure of this, but I suspect that if we do get useful information coming out of these trials in late October, early November. Those will be from those places in, in the Americas where there's been trials being conducted and also substantial amounts of community transmission still going on. And are you able to tell from from those trials, this is no doubt a slightly naive question, that how long, let's say in five years' time, whether the vaccine will bestow long-term immunity and it, does, it won't have any long-term side effects? Yeah, so this is another question that we, we, we can't in principle answer uh, at the moment of course, the other thing that's happened since I wrote the article is that we've had the first few uh, confirmed cases, or at least very reliable reported cases of reinfection, um, showing that uh, the virus itself, infection with the virus itself, doesn't always lead to long-term sterilising immunity. That was, as it were, predicted from, from what we know about other coronaviruses. Of course, a vaccine's a bit different. It may well be that, you know, the best vaccines confer longer-term protection than, than infection. That's that's perfectly possible. We don't know that yet, and, and obviously it will have to be, you know, something that, that plays out over time. And, and then, of course, there's degrees to which you might be protected. And again, this is possibly reflected in what we've seen with the cases of reinfection. So the first case that was reported of reinfection was a young, uh, youngish man, who was found to have a second infection by asymptomatic screening because he came into Hong Kong and they found that he had he was positive for the SARS-CoV-2 test and they sequenced that virus and found that it was a slightly different virus to the one that he'd been infected with previously, which they also sequenced. So that really demonstrates these are two separate infections. It's not a case of the virus sort of lingering on over a long period of time. And that kind of reinfection may turn out to be relatively common there are other cases, there's another case that's been reported where the second infection was symptomatic and actually more severe than the first infection. Now, I suspect there's an element of selection bias going on. Most places are not routinely screening very large numbers of asymptomatic individuals. And so it may well be the case that second and subsequent infections tend to be either very mild or asymptomatic. It's what we would hope and it's what we would predict on the basis of what's known about the other circulating human coronaviruses. So, so that may well be the case also with vaccination, that, that a vaccine will give you sterilising immunity for a short period of time, and then it may protect you from having severe disease over a longer period of time. That, that would be a perfectly likely uh, outcome to vaccination. But I, I stress we don't know that at the moment, but, but that would be a, a sort of plausible thing to occur. And of course, the other thing about vaccination is that 
the purpose of it isn't so much to protect individuals, it's about creating herd immunity. Well, well, it can be both. Um, I mean, initially, of course, you would want to because, of course, initially there won't be enough vaccines to go around, uh, which is why it's, we, we can hope that, that more than one of these vaccine candidates is successful. Initially, you'll want to target the populations most at risk uh, and the populations that are most likely or potentially likely to spread it around. So that probably means healthcare workers and vulnerable individuals. And then you can talk about trying to develop population level herd immunity by vaccinating uh, you know, people on a much larger scale. So I'm sure people will be hoping that the vaccines are individually protective and that will be an important component of the the whole sort of enterprise. To develop population level herd immunity or community immunity is is going to be a longer term uh, project, I think. Yeah, and there are a number of reasons that obviously there's the the simple logistics of vaccinating, as it were, the, the entire global population and producing enough and vaccine and needles and all the rest of it. And there's also the question of people refusing a vaccine that i've seen some of the figures that you know quite high numbers of people are saying that they wouldn't they wouldn't have one yes again for this business of trying to get up to the herd immunity threshold um this doesn't this is not a virus like measles where the the reproductive rate the r rate basic reproductive rate is in the sort of late teens to early 20s where you need sort of 95 percent plus of your population to be vaccinated before you would uh, stop sustained community transmission you know, it depends a lot on, on exactly where you're measuring this this famous R rate, but the, the SARS-CoV-2 R is in the sort of two two and a half to three range on most measures. So you probably wouldn't... And that's the number of people that each infected person on average passes the virus on to. Correct. I'm, I suppose I'm naively assuming that listeners to this podcast will have will have absorbed enough covidology to, to, to <laughs> catch in, what we're just talking in case. about but yet yeah, but, but yes i mean again the naive prediction and i stress that there are more more sophisticated mathematical models are available but the naive prediction would be you probably need to get to something like 70 percent or, or you know that sort of level of you know immunity before you were sort of substantially suppressing transmission okay so that means so there's one number i've seen that 35% of people saying they wouldn't take a vaccine that may not matter because if 65% of people do then you're close to yes I mean I, I suppose we we are uh, I wouldn't extrapolate too much from those kinds of polls I mean the way in which you interpret that question could be quite different I you know would I take a vaccine now well the answer is I would as part of a large-scale clinical trial organized by a competent authority as we've discussed, if it were a question of a government um, for purely political reasons or largely political reasons, rushing out a, a vaccine candidate before it was uh, definitely safe, you know, people would be very rational, perhaps, to, to refuse vaccination under those circumstances. And, and you know, telling someone who's from a polling agency, would I take a vaccine, is a bit different from your doctor has recommended that you personally have this vaccine. And, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too sort of worried necessarily about those kinds of polling data. Obviously, if we do try to rush out a vaccine and it is not good, you know, that really would be a disaster and you would almost certainly undermine public confidence in the concept of vaccination. So, you know, there's a, there are very substantial reasons why it would be very worrying uh, if governments, uh, you know, did try to put this kind of pressure on, on agencies. And, and I think the big worry there is the United States, where we've seen the FDA make almost bizarrely unscientific statements about uh, convalescent plasma 
presumably under political pressure from the, uh, the Trump administration. So it's to be very much hoped that the relevant authorities in, in, in different countries do not respond to this kind of political pressure. But how would convalescent plasma work as a as a therapy if it if it if it does work? Well, so so uh, whilst we're on this subject, so the the idea behind convalescent plasma is approximately that somebody who has uh, been infected with the virus and they've got over it, and now they have uh, antibodies which would potentially block the uh, SARS-CoV-2 entry. And the idea is that you transfer plasma containing these antibodies to an unwell individual in hospital and you hope that it, it protects them. Now, the, the, there are some trials ongoing and it may well be that that is efficacious up to a point under certain circumstances. Uh, there was a sort of bizarrely unscientific statement that there was a 35% uh, risk reduction uh, from this, which is just totally not supported by a preprint, not even a proper clinical trial, something that would under normal circumstances be sort of hypothesis generating. You'd then go and test this properly in a clinical trial. The real risk reduction is nothing like 35%. It was very worrying, I think, uh, for a lot of people to hear senior figures at the FDA sort of quote this, again, you know, presumably under pressure. I mean, they must know it's nonsense, you know, just so as there can be a good news story. But there are other therapies which are, I mean, we are, I say we... Doctors are much better at treating it now than they were six months ago. Yeah, that, that, that is true. So, so uh, one thing I alluded to was dexamethasone, which has got some really good um, proper controlled clinical trial data behind it, showing that in the most severely infected patients, it really is a very effective therapy. It, it's also effective in patients who are requiring oxygen in hospital. The data suggests that for more mildly infected patients, it's perhaps not efficacious. But there's strong data in favour of giving dexamethasone for, for patients who are very unwell, for example, on, on a ventilator. And that's a widely available bog-standard steroid? It's widely available. It's very cheap. I think in the article I describe it as an ancient blunderbuss, and it, it really is. It's got a lot of side effects. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be administered, uh, as it were, willy-nilly, but kudos to the team that designed this clinical trial, again, based in Oxford, I must say, for trialling this in such a way that it gives us great confidence that it, it really would work under those circumstances. Other therapies, like hydroxychloroquine, you know, clearly don't work. And then there's uh, remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug, a directly antiviral drug, which works a bit. It might work very well if you could give it very early on in the course of the disease. That's logistically quite difficult and it's quite complicated to manufacture and there are not large stocks of it available. So, so that's maybe helping a bit. I suspect also we've got a lot better, I should say I'm not an intensive care physician or, or, or a respiratory physician, but I, th I suspect we've got a lot better at treating what you might call supportive care for this condition as well. So the way in which people get ventilated, for example, anticoagulation, it seems that uh, thrombosis, so blood clots forming in, in untoward places is, is a feature of this uh, disease. Uh, and, and, and people are getting sort of better at recognising that you should have, you know, some form of anticoagulation. It would be nice actually to see a trial demonstrating exactly what form of anticoagulation was best. That, that would be quite a useful thing for, for people to do if we do potentially have a, a substantial second and subsequent wave. So we probably have got better at treating it as well. Yes. No, I was going to say, come on to the potential second wave later, but in terms of, I mean, the case fatality rate seems to be going down presumably partly because of these therapies also that the average age of people getting infected is is a lot lower i saw somewhere that the average age was, was about 30 
We should distinguish between the case fatality rates, which obviously varies massively depending on how good you are at detecting cases. And if you're very good at detecting asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic cases, then your case fatality rate will go down just because you've detected more cases. And the infection fatality rate, which is the chance that you die given that you're infected. So those are two quite different things. The infection fatality rate varies enormously with the population, so particularly with age, but also certain comorbidities. And so it's, it, it seems to be that the infection fatality rate is going down more or less across, across the board. And it may well be not simply due to uh, younger people getting infected, though that may be the, the, the major driver. It may well also be to do with slightly better treatment. Another intriguing possibility is it may be to do with the dose, the average dose of virus that people are getting, and possibly also the route by which they're contracting the virus. So it may well be the case that when it was more or less business as usual in early March, people were still, you know, going to, uh, you know, crowded poorly ventilated places and talking to each other from a short distance and and thereby getting a sort of a large dose of the virus which might predispose you to more severe disease whereas now people are a bit more cautious a lot of people are wearing masks and it's possible and I say possible this is by no means proven that one of the effects that we're seeing is is a dosage effect that that's best described as informed speculation at the moment but clearly the major effect that we're seeing with the lower infection fatality rates at the moment is that it tends to be you know, younger people with fewer comorbidities that are getting infected. In the last month over August, the month since you wrote your piece, the number of new daily cases has increased and it seems to be continuing to increase. Is this the beginning of a second wave or are most of the cases people returning from abroad, community spread is still relatively rare better at testing and I, I think it's difficult to, i mean I, there are clearly places where you, you really are having a, a, a second wave i think spain is is, is undoubt, undoubtedly in that category probably also france in the uk i think it's a bit more difficult to tell there probably is a genuine uptick in cases but like i say the office of national statistics survey isn't showing a big change and so it may be that I mean, this is the optimistic scenario that we've got a little bit better at targeting the tests with this, you know, track and trace system, at least, uh, you know, somewhat in place. We're getting slightly better at detecting cases. That would be another reason why cases might be going up. Is it the beginning of a second wave? Too early to tell. We we could hope not. (laughs) Um, uh, And it it will be um, interesting to see what happens when uh, schools and universities go back. Uh, in, in, in whatever form. Some schools are back, well, they're going back this week. Teachers are in today. There's a push for offices, a strong push from government for offices to reopen. But we're heading into the autumn. Seasonal flu is, you know, a few months away. Isn't there a danger that everything is going to get a lot worse again? Um, there's a, yeah, I mean, there absolutely is a danger that everything's going to get a lot worse again. And um, what we see with the other coronaviruses is they are very seasonal. There may be a, a, a stronger effect of climate than people perhaps anticipated. Um, that's certainly possible. You know, we, we are in unknown territory here. What I would say is that we're in a much better position than we were in terms of detecting what's going on than we were in March, a much better position. And so I think it would be unlikely that we'll have quite such a bad second wave as, as the first one because we know so much more about the virus, we have so much you know, better testing capacity, 
And people are just much more sensible and cautious than I think they were being in, in, in March. There's, there's mask wearing and there's, you know, the, the realisation that, uh, you know, it's not much fun having this disease, if you, especially if you get hospitalised. And uh, it's to be hoped that we have enough sort of behavioural effect that we wouldn't require further sort of nationwide lockdowns. But time will tell. And local lockdowns are very much still a possibility. Well, local lockdowns are already, you know, still in, still in place. Yeah, I think the government is planning to to carry on with those. Um, obviously, it's much better if you can target the, the more you can target your lockdown, the better. You know, shutting down the entire economy is not great. If you have to shut down a or more substantially shut down a, a smaller region, that's you know less bad. The idea would be that you could, at an individual level, know who was really at risk because you had a really effective, you know, uh, tracking and tracing and, and testing system in place. How effective the UK system is at the moment, I think, is um, it must be at least somewhat effective, but uh, on some measures, it's not doing, you know, as well as it ideally would be. If you see what I mean, I think it's a bit um, a bit of an indictment that we still don't have a useful app for this. Other countries, I think, have also struggled with this, but uh, I, I maintain that with enough sort of uh, political will and expertise, this probably could be, uh, you know, put in place in a in a widespread, useful way. And the there's a question of um, that Public Health England that they said is being abolished or dismantled or, or reformed. Is that a good idea in the middle of a pandemic? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to think that a, a sort of um, an organisational reshuffle is going to help anybody. You, you know, all the details of it, I think, are not, are not quite clear. I think it's, it would be tremendously unfair to scapegoat Public Health England for everything that went wrong. In, in February and March, I mean, no doubt, you know, very obviously mistakes were made, but um, yeah, it, it, it seems rather unfair to, to as it were, put all the blame on one particular public health organisation when there it was such a complicated setup with, you know, uh, the, the different parts of the NHS, NHS England, NHS, you know, in, in Wales and Scotland, the different uh, public health agencies, the Department of Health and Social Care itself, Sage, etc. It's a very complicated setup, and. One suspects that there were mistakes made by all sorts of bodies in in February and March. And ultimate decision making responsibility rests with the politicians who are all still in office. But there we are. Yes. I mean, I was going to talk about schools, but I mean, it seems to me that, that I mean, there were some figures out today about the the amount of schooling, the amount of education that children have lost, and that the most deprived children are the furthest behind. And really, the, the reopening, I mean, especially of primary schools, seems to me ought to be an absolute priority that if you have children who are not learning to read then the, the serious long-term consequences of that are enormous yes I, I think there's a substantial level of agreement that you know schools need to be prioritized for reopening um and and i i think that's across the political spectrum and i, I think you'll find very few scientists uh, disagreeing with that for influenza it's known that younger children are particular drivers of, of spread it's not really clear that this is the case for this particular virus. It looks like they might um, be less responsible for it. So that's, an, as it were, an additional argument in favour of reopening schools. And, of course, children themselves are at very, very low risk of, of, of having anything, you know, very serious. And they're not at zero risk, but they're at very, very low risk. So 
it does seem that prioritising reopening of schools is a, a logical thing to do. And, you know, it's certainly ahead of uh, other aspects of the economy. You, you would have hoped that uh, schools should uh, have a higher priority than pubs. But uh, Yeah, which Boris has exactly said this time, we'll shut the pubs first. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems as if it might make more sense to hold back other, the reopening of other places until the schools have been open for a month or so, so you can focus on that. The idea, there's, there seems to be this strong feeling, oh, it's September, holidays are over, everyone back to school, back to work, as if things had substantially changed more than they have since since everything was shut down five months ago. The reopening clearly will have to be done very uh, cautiously. It would be excellent if there were more tests available in schools so that you could know immediately um, if you were getting or about to have an outbreak rather than you know having to wait until people got severe symptoms uh, before you got uh, enough people tested. I, I know there are substantial efforts going on in that regard, but I'm I'm not an expert in that particular, you know, area. So I'd hesitate to give you sort of further definitive comment on it. I mean, I, I think everyone would agree that schools should be a priority. Exactly how you do that is a slightly different question. Um, there's this business about you know when and if uh, pupils and teachers should be wearing masks. You know, probably for older children, it would be a very good idea. There will no doubt be some localised outbreaks in schools. You know, this has happened in other countries, and really, the, the, so the sooner you would, the sooner you can get to know about that, the sooner you can do something about it. And I think also, if you had a better testing capacity, you know, within schools, then you'd, you'd reassure parents a little bit more and, and teachers that they were going to be safe. So I, I expect this is being looked into, and I, I hope that they manage to roll something out pretty rapidly in that regard. But it, did it- on the university's question again, I mean, do you think if there's an outbreak in a university and it's not possible to to control to contact trace everyone and shut it down that way, there, is there a possibility that universities will will close? Yeah, yes, yeah, I think there is. Yeah, it, it, it probably would depend a bit on the individual university, but yeah, it, it's possible if something was clearly getting out of control that they'd be asked to shut down. But you couldn't then send all the students home because that would then no so you it would shut down to, they'd, they'd, exactly it'd be confining everyone to their rooms basically might not be too much fun i think universities might turn out to be much more problematic than schools actually yes and schools are going back this week so it's less of a hot topic but i suspect it will be a hot topic in three weeks time rupert bill thank you very much thank you you can read rupert bill's piece in the summer issue of the lrb our new issue will be out shortly on our website and other digital channels on Wednesday, and reaching subscribers soon after that. It will include Christian Lawrenson on Joe Biden, Ian Penman on Kraftwerk, Sheila Fitzpatrick on Zygmunt Bauman, and the third and final part of The Suitcase by Francis Stoner Saunders. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.